Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In our last episode, episode 28, we told you about Lynn Hernan, a fun, generous hairdresser and all-around cool gal who was found dead in her Wisconsin home on October 3rd, 2018. We told you about some of her true friends like Anthony Poza, and we began telling you about Jesse Kerchevsky, who, despite being treated like a daughter by Lynn, was secretly spending Lynn's money, lying prolifically, and planning Lynn's death. In this episode, we'll pick up where we left off, beginning with the ever-changing story Jesse told investigators following her arrest. Jesse had said the day of Lynn's death that Lynn wasn't suicidal, you know, there's no way, yeah, Lynn had these medical problems, but she'd never seen or heard anything suicidal out of Lynn. Once she was arrested and in custody in July of that year, so now we're almost a year from the death, this is July of 2019, during the uh, first interview with police, she pretty much stuck to that story that Lynn didn't kill herself, and if she did, Jesse, of course, didn't have anything to do with it. And the detectives didn't say anything about the eye drops at that point, but pretty much for the next four or five days, when the detectives would arrive at work, they'd have a note saying that Jesse wanted to talk to him pretty much every day. And this is like a complex where the sheriff's office, the courthouse, the medical examiner, and the jail are all in one kind of gigantic building. They, of course, if she wants to talk, they call her in, let's talk. She came of her own free will. She denied wanting to see a lawyer or anything like that. And over those days, each day, the story would evolve a little bit, and it was very obvious what was going on. She would come in and tell a story. The detectives would tell her a little bit of information that was sort of concerning about her story, and then the next day she would come back. She would have an explanation that now expanded and encompassed the information they had, but in a way that she wasn't guilty of anything. The detective eventually told her that the concern was about these eye drops and that they think that's what killed her. And Jesse was confused. She said she didn't know anything about eye drops or tetrahydrosoline. The problem with that, though, is that in January, six months prior, Jesse and her boyfriend were having a little bit of a, you know, a rough time. And she starts telling him that she is sick. And then she starts texting him from supposedly from a clinic saying that she's been drugged with tetrahydrosoline and that the doctor is really concerned about her because her blood pressure is dropping and this could have killed her if she didn't get care soon enough. And that it must have been slipped in her drink by someone at the bar last night. That's Jesse to Jesse's boyfriend who's saying all that stuff. Yeah. According to the boyfriend. Well, not just according to the boyfriend, but according to the text messages that the police were oh, able to recover. He got receipts, yo. Yeah. So in July, she's pretending like she knows nothing about eye drops or that they can be dangerous. But six months prior to that, she's explaining via text message to her boyfriend how she has been the victim of this, how it could be fatal, how it's used as a date rape drug. She clearly knows everything there is to know about tetrahydrosoline. The text message exchange with the boyfriend, that was in January of which year would that have been? It was in January of 19. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, forgive me for being skeptical of Jesse because she clearly seems like a lying dirtbag. So she says to him that, you know, she's went to the doctor and all that. Like, were the police, did they follow up? Did she actually go? Like, was she actually poisoned or was there any evidence that that happened or she just make that up to him back in January? Or do we know? 
Well, when the detectives ask her about this, she denies that she ever told Scott that. She said many different things. She went from knowing nothing about eye drops to then knowing about them. And it was her friend that had that experience because originally she said it never happened. Then she said, well, it was her friend. Then she would go on to say that she watched Lynn mix Visine in her water bottles because she liked to take it orally to get some kind of little buzz or something, which makes absolutely no sense. To her final statement on the Visine ended with, she knew Lynn had put six bottles of Visine in a specific water bottle and before she left the morning of Lynn's death, Lynn asked her to hand her that bottle, and she did after they argued about it. But at the same time, she said she didn't think it was going to hurt her because she'd been drinking it all along and it, when it wasn't a problem. Wow. Okay. This is crazy. So just so I understand, essentially, there's a series of interviews, which that makes sense, right? So they go and they talk, the police are, you know, they're talking to her and they have questions and as they're kind of learning more about the case and then also just sort of seeing what she's willing to part with. Yeah, but they're not her. calling her back in. They're showing up to work, working on whatever they're doing. And they get a message. Hey, Jesse wants to talk to you guys again. And this is like every day for like four or five days. They aren't calling her in. She is asking to come in. So then in these interviews where she's like you're saying, she's voluntarily coming in. It's not like they're harassing her. She goes from I don't know anything about anything that has to do with that. What are you talking about? To like, oh yeah, okay, I know about it, but my boyfriend's confused about this story, even though my text messages contradict what I'm telling you, police officer, all the way to, oh, well, actually Lynn was using eye drops as like a party drug. <laughs> is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty oh much. my gosh. Well, okay. On that point, during some of the coverage on this case, I know uh, there's another podcast out there called Body Bags. It's uh, hosted by Joseph Scott Morgan. He's a professor at Jackson State. He's a distinguished scholar of applied forensics. And uh, so he did an interview about specifically about the these eye drops. And he was asked, is that a thing? I mean, are people actually recreationally, is Visine like Zanny bars and, uh, you know, <laughs> Lil Wayne's purple drink? And he was like, absolutely not. And nobody would ever do that. It, it would make you feel awful. And it's between making you feel awful and killing you essentially is what this would do to you. So there's no way that anybody right. would ever just do this. There's no evidence anywhere that any human being has ever reported any good feeling from drinking any amount of Visine. Just like you said, the results are going to be somewhere between it's going to make you sick to it's going to make you dead. Yeah. And another point, okay, let's live in Jesse's delusional hypothetical world the last time that she went and voluntarily gave information to investigators. If Lynn is living her best life partying, getting crunk off of these eye drops, wouldn't there be like eye drop bottles everywhere all over her apartment, even though they found none? Well, that was a problem that everyone came back to, including the medical examiner, was that there were none. All the drugs that were in her gut and in her blood, there was some evidence of them within Lynn's reach, but there was no evidence of Visine anywhere around her. Meanwhile, Jesse says that every time she would go to the store, Lynn wanted her to buy more Visine, and it was not the Visine name brand, but some off-brand, and Jesse was buying them six at a time for Lynn because she was going through them like crazy. Now, again, this is like day four or five of her talking to police. On day one, she knew nothing about it, nothing about Visine or how that would end up in Lynn's system. You said that according to Jesse, Lynn had her go buy these Visine bottles six at a time. 
And I thought that was interesting because also I think it was in the medical examiner's testimony. I thought that her conclusion was essentially that the amount of uh, this tetra, you know, big fancy word, the amount of that that was in her blood, she essentially, it was like, well, she would have had to have had like six of these bottles. Is that correct before I go any further? No, the medical examiner and the defense's medical examiner and the other person that testified for the defense and the genius lady from the toxicology lab all testify that, first of all, with any drug, you can't take a post-mortem specimen and then calculate that backward to the amount ingested. And that's in some of their forensic association guidelines and whatnot, that post-mortem samples cannot be used to reverse figure out the dosage. Now, what the one expert did was when it came to the pills, he looked at FDA trials and based on the half-life from those studies and sort of figured that out. But when it comes to tetrahydrosolate, they couldn't even try to do that if they wanted to because there haven't been studies of having people drink tetrahydrosoline and then checking their serum blood levels at later points. The one thing they did find was what was in her stomach contents. So mm. they did find some in there. It was like two teaspoons or two tablespoons would be the equivalent of the amount of tetrahydrosoline that was in her stomach that had not yet been absorbed by their body. For some reason, I thought I recalled that from the testimony. The six comes in because Jesse in one of the later interviews said, I knew that Lynn put six bottles of Visine in this bottle of water because Lynn told me. Uh, I see. Okay. Because I thought it was interesting that you have this very specific, oh, she sent me to buy six at a time. And then later on, there's this other reference to six. You know, this, this other thing in six. And it's like, so I wonder if this was just her kind of inadvertently foreshadowing or letting a little bit slip about it wasn't that Lynn sent her to buy six at a time. It's that that's how many she put in this, uh, this woman's drink, right? You know it could be. Originally, she knew nothing about mm. Lynn consuming eye drops. But then as the story went on one day at a time, as she found out a little bit more that the cops knew, she just revised her story to accommodate what they knew in a way that gave her the least amount of exposure. Well, yeah, now it's a, uh, there's a rave uh, at Lynn's house every day on Visine. I don't think anybody disputed that Lynn liked alcohol. Of course, Jesse portrayed it as a uh, pretty significant issue, even in Lynn's current state, whereas it sounded like from others that she probably did drink vodka. That seemed to be what she liked. But Jesse would have you believe that she was falling down intoxicated every day from drinking Visine vodka and chomping up whatever pills she could get her hands on. Also, the circle that includes Jesse and Jennifer is the only circle in which you'll find any mention of of suicidal ideation or any of that. In Corrine's circle, everyone says absolutely not. She wasn't suicidal. She never mentioned it, never talked about it, never gave us any indication that that was a thing. Even the, the neighbor who came over and helped lift Lynn up one time when she fell said, and I think that's in this criminal complaint, that she never had any inclination that Lynn was suicidal. This deal of Jesse telling her boyfriend that she had been drugged with these eye drops and nearly died and went to the doctor and all that, that wasn't the only lie that she had poor Scott living under. About uh. five months before Lynn's death, Scott had texted Jesse about something, dinner or something, and she texted him back and told him that they were at Freighter, another hospital, and that Lynn was in a coma and things were bad. From that point on, five months before Lynn actually died, she led Scott to believe that Lynn was laying in a coma in this hospital. 
He didn't know until July of 2019 when the police showed up with the search warrant at the house he and Jesse shared. He still thought Lynn died in the hospital after being in a coma for five months. So he was wow. shocked. Now, when the police asked Jesse about this, initially she kind of blew it off. It was like, I, I don't know where he got that idea. I never told him she was that Lynn was in a coma. She, I guess, thinks that deleting something off your cell phone means it's really deleted. Wait, well, you mean if I delete a message off my phone, it's not actually deleted? Oh, hell no. Phones and computers are about as secure as a wet paper bag. They found the text messages where she had told him this. And then there was a recording of a jail conversation. I don't understand why people talk over jail phones. And they tell you, most of the ones that I've listened to, the recording, you know, when you make the call, it tells you like you're being recorded. So it's not like it's a surprise or anybody. I'm with you though. I don't, people just will say some things. Scott confronts her, you know, she's like, I don't know, some of the effect of, I guess you're really mad, huh? And he's like, you think? <laughs> I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to that effect. And he told her, like, everything's a lie. I don't even know you. Everything's been a lie. And he confronts her with this coma lie. And even though she's told police that she doesn't have any idea what he's talking about, she tells him, I did that to protect you. I know, I'm sorry I lied, but I did that to protect you. So I've got a couple of issues with that. Number one, you're telling the police that they don't know what he's talking about. Meanwhile, you're telling him, yeah, I totally lied to you. So that's issue number one. And issue number two is protect him from what? Unless she absolutely knew what she was doing here at least five months before Lynn died. Right. With Lynn's medical issues, she was in the hospital a couple times, and her most significant stay, it sounds like, was just before she died. She died on October 3rd, but she had spent September 15th through 28th in the hospital. And some interesting things happened while she was in the hospital. According to her account, she spent like $4,000, which seems like a lot for somebody that's in the hospital who doesn't shop online. Also, Jim, the former boyfriend who is now a lifelong buddy, kept calling and trying, couldn't get a hold of anybody. The last time he called, two females were on the phone and both kind of abruptly and rudely told him to stop calling. Huh. And neither one of those females was Lynn. Lynn was frustrated with her medical situation. She felt like she was sick of being sick and nothing was working, and all these weird things that the doctors were suggesting were just not fun. Wanted to do a colonoscopy, and she's like, no, you know, we've done that before. It was horrible. I hated it. We're not doing that again. And she got upset, which I can understand. And so it sounds like the medical team was kind of a little bit like, well, you know, we really don't know what to do with you. So they called for a palliative care consult. And palliative care is keeping someone comfortable, not necessarily right. trying to reverse a disease or repair an injury. It's just keeping you comfortable. And you hear about this a lot of times with end-of-life care when people are terminally ill, although there's no evidence that Lynn was terminally ill with anything. She had this back problem and she had this sort of unknown abdominal ailment going on. Well, when palliative care comes in, their notes are that they talked to the patient, they were there for less than 30 minutes, and they were releasing her and done with it. Like there was nothing for them to do there. So it's not as though we're dealing with end of life measures here. She's not terminally ill. She's not dying anytime soon. She's having trouble managing these things and doing what she's doing. Another odd thing that happened in the hospital is that Jesse insisted that Lynn just took whatever pill she wanted whenever she wanted and was pretty reckless about it and that she had insisted that Jesse bring her some of her medications from home, I think particularly the Xanax. 
And Jesse said she felt really uncomfortable about that. She didn't think it was the right thing to do, but you know, it's Lynn's life and it's her med. So she brought him to her and then she told the hospital, the nurses immediately about it so that they would know. And then the hospital right after that put cameras in Lynn's room uh, because Mm. they didn't trust her. And the medical reports kind of blew that all out of the water. There was absolutely no record of Jesse reporting to the staff that these medications had been brought in. And I don't know how much you know about charting, but that's something that would get documented because one, they don't let you have outside medications while you're in the hospital. And two, somebody brings them in, they're going to lock them up in a locker, which they did chart that when she was first admitted, she had a couple of prescriptions on her person and they took those and stored them in locker number, whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, this is what I know about charting. If you don't chart it, it didn't happen. That's true. That's true. She was reporting that she was having mobility problems. She was having continence problems. When she was discharged from the hospital, there was a suggestion that she go into a rehab facility. She was absolutely not interested in that. So the medical staff felt like if she was going to go home, that she needed to have some kind of in-home care, not what Jesse was doing, just sort of helping out with some things around the house and running errands, but you know, maybe somebody medical come in and check up on her. She was initially supposed to uh, have an appointment the day before she was killed. I believe it was a Monday. She was supposed to have her first meeting with the in-home healthcare folks to sort of set things up. That meeting was postponed from Monday until Friday, and then Lynn died on Tuesday. So the in-home care people never made it to uh, be in her home all the time. You're not seeing anything coincidental there. I'm just, I'm just chewing on everything you're saying right now. Because that seems like Jesse probably pushed out that appointment for the setup. I was like, shit, I got to get this done now. Otherwise, I'm going to have these home health people around. I have been thinking about the timing of everything and wondering sort of what led to, like, why did it happen when it happened and and what was going on in Jesse's life. So, yeah, well, Lynn was running out of money. Right, right. Additionally, on the idea of whether Lynn was suicidal or not. She went out and had lunch with some of the Kareen circle. It wasn't Kareen herself. I believe it was the brother and uh, maybe a cousin or something. She had lunch that day back at the house. She ran into Anthony. He was excited to see her. And she told him, you know, hey, next time we have lunch together, you need to come. You should have been there, whatever. And this was like late August, early September. So that was a month before Lynn died. And they all report. She was in good spirits. Yeah, she was frustrated with her illness and whatnot, but she was making plans for the future and looking forward to getting better, which isn't really consistent with someone that's suicidal. Something else that occurred that is rather bizarre. I told you that Jesse was the personal representative, according to the will, and Jesse started executing that right after Lynn died and was moving down that path. Of course, there were questions and concerns. But while Jesse is in jail, uh, after she's been arrested and she's in jail, so this is, I think, a little over a year after the murder, she produces a new will from jail and says, this is the will. From jail. Just to be clear, you just said from jail. Yeah, I had to say that twice so nobody lost it. From jail. Yeah. But now, how do you explain the first will that you filed as the personal representative and said, this is the will? But no, I've got this new one that I just came up with from jail. Well, she had a very interesting story about that. She said that the original will, the one that listed her and Anthony as like 50-50 heirs of everything, 
She said that was a test from Lynn. This was the will, but that if Anthony argued with it or if Anthony contested it, that Anthony failed the test and she was to produce the second will, which of course made Jesse the sole beneficiary of everything. Oh yeah, because that's how that works. I mean, right? Wow. So that's that's a bit bizarre. I have a question. So she's in jail when she produces it, which would mean if this is legit from Lynn, who's dead before she goes into jail, she would have had to taken it into jail with her, which means they would have had a record because they would have, you know what I mean? They would have done a, uh, like a property log. They would have taken her stuff. They might've let her keep it, but it should have been documented that she brought it into jail with her. Yeah, you would think, I was thinking maybe it was, maybe she's claiming that she had someone mail it to her or something like that. I don't, the whole test theory is just bizarre. Yeah, because it's not, you know, oh my gosh, that's not how you do that. But there were also lots of other documents that were very questionable. A lot of handwritten things, like when Anthony met Jesse at at Lynn's condo shortly after she died, Jesse made a point to sort of hand Anthony these these handwritten things on legal pads that were near Lynn that alleged to describe what Lynn wanted done with things and could be interpreted, I guess, to be a suicide note, but not really because they really didn't say like, hey, I'm checking out. Here's why. Make sure you do this and this. All they just said were just blocks here and there of make sure you do this, make sure you do that. Some of it could have been what you'd leave for someone that's house sitting while you're on vacation. Hmm. Some of it could have been, hey, I'm not getting any younger. So when I'm gone, make sure you, you know, they were just weird. And the handwriting was weird. Didn't necessarily seem like it was all Lynn's handwriting. That's crazy. And just to be clear, in case anybody doesn't know, in case you're like, well, maybe that's just how you do that. Maybe you have two wills and then, you know, if things go sideways, uh, you can test people. Like, no, the way you do that is you have a clause in your will that's it's like a no contest clause that essentially says, uh, I'm going to leave all my stuff split evenly between Bob and John Smith. But if anybody contests the will, then that person's out and this is what's going to happen. Their share goes to here. If they both do, then it goes to charity, whatever. And those can be, I mean, you can challenge those, you know, you can legally challenge anything. So my point is, it's not like that's an accepted standard or even sensical, logical practice in estate planning to draft multiple wills. Uh, That's just not how that works. It's insane. Right. And I believe the first will was put together by an attorney. So it's not like it was ignorance that Lynn would have done Mm -hmm. it this way. You know, she went and had an attorney do all this. They would have known, yeah, no, you can't have two wills and hide one until like it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And I'm just going to guess that the jailhouse uh, will was handwritten on some notebook paper. I don't remember. I wish I did, but I, I don't remember. I thought it was just bizarre that it even existed. Yeah, for sure. Honestly, listening to this story, there's so much that is not real that it's almost hard for me to keep track of like what actually happened and what Jesse made up that happened. The prosecutors, I don't remember if they directly said or they certainly put the idea out there that Jesse was spinning a lot of distraction and movement and shiny objects to sort of keep everybody's eyes off what was really going on. I don't know how they worded it, but that could be because it is exhausting trying to keep up with what this parasite was doing. At one point toward the end, this might have been, I don't know, her third, fourth, fifth day of wanting to go talk to the detectives. She tells them that she has documents and other items. She's got an ace up her sleeve that she's got stored away that can prove her innocent. 
Just in case this happened, Lynn wanted her to have something that could prove she was innocent, and she also, on her own, saved some things. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's just more forged documents. Go for it. That's what I (laughs) was thinking too, but here's the rub on that. She confuses the police at first because she's saying she wants to talk to a lawyer before she turns that over. So the police, I got to say, did a great job here. They're like, time out. Are you saying you want a lawyer? Mm. No, 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 no. Just before, you know, I would want to talk to a lawyer before I tell you where this stuff is. Okay, we need to back up and do this all over again. Do you understand? You have the right to remain silent. They re-Mirandized her every time she would bring that up. Good Uh, for them. Now, they were confused and they told her very plainly, like, this makes no sense. It makes no sense to me that you say you have this evidence that will prove you're innocent, but you're holding it back. Like you're in jail right now and you say you have something stashed away that will clear this all up. And she's like, well, I just don't want to play that yet. Whatever. She is playing games at this point. She's Mm -hmm. trying, but she's pretty much running out of stuff. So eventually she decides, okay, well, you can go get this stuff. And the cop's like, all right, it's in a storage locker, right? And she's like, no, 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 I never said that. Like, well, that's what you led me to believe. And she's like, yeah, I intentionally led you to believe that because I didn't want to give up everything. So she's like telling the cop that she's already misleading him, which he knows because her story's changed every day. She says, well, I buried this. It's out by my bunny that I buried when I was little. My mom lived in this apartment complex and there's a park behind it. And, you know, my bunny was buried there. So I buried this stuff out there. And what you'll find is these three Ziploc bags, one each inside the other. And inside there, you're going to find some Visine bottles and you're going to find parts of a gun because Lynn was so suicidal. She was trying to overdose. She did that a couple of times. It didn't work. And then she bought these guns online. They're the kind you got to assemble yourself. So I took both of them from her. And so you'll find one of them in there. So they take the map. They go out there. They're digging. They're metal detecting. They find nothing. They get her on like FaceTime or something. Okay, here's where we are. Here's where he told us to be. We're finding nothing. What are we doing? Oh, okay, go here, go there, move here, move there. She sees him using the medical detector and she's like, oh, you know what? I think the parts of that gun that I buried were plastic. I don't think there was any metal in there. I guess. Convenient, isn't it? See, the story just sort of stretches cover everything. They searched high and low. They found nothing buried anywhere out there. They find the dead bunny? No, I don't think they even found the bunny. Probably didn't even real. She probably didn't even have a bunny when she was a kid. She probably made that up too. Well, we've talked about all these lies and, you know, who's spending the money and what's going where or whatnot. This was not Jesse's first rodeo with being, I don't know what you want to call it, identity theft or being a con or whatnot. Back in 2010, eight loan applications went in with a very close time period from the same computer IP address, which went back to this clinic in Milwaukee. Two of the loan applications got approved for a total of four grand. Both of those people that had gotten these loans that were like both applied for within minutes of each other from this Milwaukee clinic said, we didn't apply for no loans. We didn't give anybody permission to apply for no loans. Well, come to find out that was old Jesse that was working at this clinic and she took patients information and began submitting applications for online loans. Well, why not? I mean, that just sounds like a good idea. She thought it was a good idea because she needed to pay her rent and she had been out of work for a while before starting at this clinic. So that's legit, right? Yeah. I mean, some people sell feet picks, like you mentioned earlier, that it's your side hustle, whatever. And some people just, you know, steal other people's identities. Another caveat to this is it turns out that it it's not even just that she grabbed information from eight different people there where she was working, patients, mind you, and used it to try and get these loans. 
One of the loans she ended up getting was from a patient at the clinic she was currently working at. But one is apparently some ID information that she had kept from a victim when she worked at another medical place. She was just storing up, I guess. I get the vibe that Jesse has been this kind of person for quite some time. And it's just sort of evolved into, you know, worse and worse and worse. Maybe devolved would be better than evolved. She shows up in July of 2010 at a payday loan store, which she's not even supposed to be doing because she's on bail, but she is attempting to get a car title loan. But she's claiming to be Jennifer Flower, has a copy of Jennifer Flower's ID, her social security card, and Jennifer Flower is her mother, a check from her bank, and is trying to get this loan in her mom's name using her mom's car title. It's crazy. Was there any evidence that Jesse had any kind of drug problem or anything? I, I didn't hear any of that. Didn't sound like it. No, the only evidence that we saw about any problems is a gambling problem. One of the casinos had actually, if I remember right, they, they had basically denied her entry because she had run up a, a debt with the casino. That might be the one where she tried to use a counterfeit cashier's check. I'm not sure, but let me tell you, before we get too far away on this title loan for her mom's car, that was in the middle of July, they would come to find out that Jesse had already gotten a title loan about a month before on the oh. same car, claiming to be her mother. So she had made multiple copies of this title that she was going trying to get as many loans as she could against this car. That's crazy. Wow. So that was June, July, and September of that year. She goes and creates a bank account in the name of one of her friend's mother. She was staying with these people, a friend of hers and her mother, and she steals the mother's ID and creates a, a bank account in the, in the mother's name. Hmm. Then, let's see, a month later in October, she tried to pay a hotel bill with a completely fraudulent made-up cashier's check. She said she did it like a library or something, and she printed the same check number on She made like three or four copies, three or four of these checks, and printed the same check number, 110 in the upper right-hand corner of all of them. Oh my gosh. So, you know, she, she had her mistakes. Yeah, for real. The thing that I was trying to recall is when investigators interviewed Jesse's mom, Jennifer Flower, back in 2010, she had told the investigators that she, when she was trying to find her daughter back when her daughter was doing all that stuff, you know, basically stealing her own identity, she had called one of the casinos to see if that's where Jesse was or if she had been there. And the casino had told her, uh, no, that she was still on, on a ban and was not allowed to gamble or to even enter the premises. So... That's And the reason I asked about the addiction thing is just, we're talking about a lot of money over inconsistently. It's not like, well, I just need to clear these debts and then I'm going to move on with my life. That's why I wondered, you know, with the people who have uh, substance abuse issues, that, that can be a problem, right? Just kind of stealing, taking, doing whatever they got to, to try to find a way to pay for their fix. And it seems like Jesse's behavior, not drug related apparently, but it seems similar to that in a way that she's just constantly taking money from somebody. She's going through the amount of money that you would expect someone that has a very heavy drug dependency to go through. She's just using it to uh, gamble, live off of, and uh, buy gifts and gain favor with some people around her. Because she was pretend working, putting on scrubs and, and then whatever. I don't know, right. not going to work. Right. Why do you even do that? There's just so many things that make no sense. She seems like a, I mean, I'm not a psychologist or whatever, but the amount of lying 
that that you have shared in this brief episode. A compulsive liar. I mean, it, it definitely seems like she's just lying to lie. Like she probably can't even keep the truth straight, but it doesn't sound like she has any interest in that. She's lying to everybody about everything, things that matter, things that don't matter, whatever, all of it. When she gets caught in a lie, she just keeps twisting the story a little bit until she thinks the person is satisfied with whatever BS she's blowing and moves on. So at the end of this, she had taken what prosecutors believe was $290,210.06 from Lynn. Dang. At the point at which Lynn died, her accounts had gone from having a couple hundred thousand or whatever down to they were almost empty. Well, yeah, you had that one box that was 50 grand in there at least. And then then there's just a jewel, a loose jewel. That's it. Right. But all these bank accounts had Hmm. been pretty much drained. That's crazy. That is a lot of money. Hmm. Certainly the, the case was made and it seems pretty compelling. This looks like what happened here. Jesse spent all of Lynn's money and then some got her in debt. And so now the only way to raise cash at this point is to sell the condo. Yeah. So the wells run dry. So now what am I going to do? Well, okay. And I wonder, you know, does Lynn have life insurance? There's the condo. Is there anything else that might be out there that, you know what I mean? She could potentially suck her dry on that too. Well, it doesn't seem like Lynn had any life insurance. There wasn't any reported by anyone, but the Mm. condo was definitely an asset. Now, the Jeep that she had just bought a couple of years before, she had told someone else, I can't remember um, who it was exactly, but she had promised that to someone in Kareen's circle and said, hey, when I go, I want you to have this. But two weeks before her death, the Jeep was titled to Jennifer Flower, Jesse's mom. It's convenient. She also had been very specific with several people that the real good jewelry that she had bought, one of those items was a bracelet. And she had told several people specifically that she wanted that left to Jim whenever she went. Not that she was planning on leaving, but Jim was to get that. And I think she spent like $4,000 or something on on that bracelet. So, you know, it was nice. It was a nice gold bracelet. But Jesse decided that she was going to sell that bracelet. And she told Anthony, the other heir, that she thought it made more sense for them to just sell it and split it rather than giving it to Jim. And Anthony's kind of a naive kid. He assumes she's got things under control and doing what's right. Now, she tells people that she talked to Anthony about it and they agreed they would sell it. The interesting thing is when she takes this bracelet to the pawn shop, and I think she got like 14, 1900 bucks for it. The pawn shop makes you tell them some things like your name, how long have you owned the item? She says, and this is very shortly, this is like still in October of 2018. She says that she's owned it for two and a half months. Well, now how's that possible when Lynn just died two weeks ago? Uh-huh. And then she takes some additional jewelry of Lynn's down to the pawn shop. And same thing. She reports that she's owned it for months. It's I mean, it's all garbage. It is all garbage. And I, I should have said the last thing I, I got to say before, I'd like you to explain to us a little bit more about these charges because the jury was definitely confused when it came to the verdict forms and, and me too. But as far as the estate of Lynn goes, Jesse was ultimately removed as the personal representative on the estate and the estate remained open pending the disposition of this homicide case. Yeah. And I would imagine not that he probably cares and it's, you know, whatever at this point, but it's going to be hard to get any money out of Jesse now that she's where she is. But, you know, he, he could sue her for the way that all of this went on, assuming that the original will is valid and that he is listed as an heir uh he could come after what what should have been his that was wrongfully disposed of by jesse and you know just talking about wrongfully disposed of according to the criminal complaint going back to this gambling problem that she had it alleges that 
from July 2016 to July 2019, so over the course of three years, she had uh, over 50, around $55,000 in debt on credit cards at ca- these casinos at, at like three or four different casinos in the area. I, I mean, so I can't even imagine. Right. That's pretty fair to say. And that's, that's credit card debt. That's not like who knows what she was spending in cash. Cause you know, she's taking cash too. Uh, it's just crazy to me, but it definitely seems like she had a problem as far as that's concerned. And maybe that was a big part of the motivation behind taking Lynn's money. As far as the charges go, she was charged with three counts, one first degree intentional homicide. And again, we're in Wisconsin, so that's the jurisdiction we're in. This is defined by statute and first degree intentional homicide. And what they allege that Jesse caused the death of Lynn with the intent to kill her and that that was contrary to Wisconsin law. And if convicted, there's a mandatory life sentence with that. Then counts two and three. This is where it gets a little confusing. It's a little weird. These are both theft counts and they're listed in the complaint as theft, movable property. Count two is listed as uh, being over $10,000. And specifically, it says that Jesse intentionally transferred movable property of Lynn's, specifically money, having a value of more than $10,000 without her consent and with the intent to permanently deprive Lynn of the possession of that property, contrary to Wisconsin law. The third count is a theft of movable property between more than 10000 but less than 100000 So this one, it sounds like, well, isn't that kind of the same thing? And really it is, but specifically in the way that they charged this, the time frame for count two, that just over 10000 was from January 1st, 2016 to October 3rd, 2018. And then count three had to deal with October 4th, the next day, 2018, through July 9th, 2019, and specifically had to do with her estate. And they say that in this charge here. They say that she did intentionally transfer removable property of the estate of Lynn, specifically money, having a value of more than $10,000, but, but not exceeding 100000 There's a lot to wade through there. You know, if you look at these two paragraphs side by side, they look almost identical. You got to read it really carefully. And frankly, you know, you said there was some confusion with the verdict forms. You know, in trials, the lawyers write up the verdict forms. The oh, court, there's the problem. <laughs> right, there's the right, problem. Right. The court reviews it and approves it and ultimately is the one who, you know, provides that to the jury for the jury to consider and review. But, you know, what happens every day, people send a text message and it gets confused. Somebody misinterprets something, tone, context, a word, a comma is missing, and it becomes very confusing. And so, you know, verdict forms, no exception. Those are easy to get confused when you have two charges like this that are very similar. They're clearly different, but you know, if you're just reading it, it might be like, well, isn't this kind of the same thing? Like, I don't understand what the difference is. Yeah, right. Especially when they tell the jury, like, we're sending you back here and you need to figure out whether she killed her and stole her money. But then I got six different forms to fill out that look very similar to each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you take all that on top of just, I mean, how long did this trial go on for, Bob? 15 days, maybe. Yeah, you're a juror. You've been in this trial for three weeks and you've heard all kinds of evidence. And I mean, honestly, just recapping it, all of Jesse's lies made my head hurt. I don't even know what to believe. I don't know which way's up right now. And then you got this form with these things that look the same. It would be confusing, but the penalties on those are the same on those theft counts. It's uh, a fine of up to $25,000 or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. At Jesse's sentencing, which is currently scheduled for December 7th, she faces a, you know, a mandatory life imprisonment on the murder charge and then a maximum 10-year sentence 
on the theft charges. How does that work out with the mandatory life on the first degree intentional homicide? That doesn't preclude the possibility of parole, does it? And also, is there a shot she'll get bond pending appeal? Uh, you know, bond pending appeal. I feel I feel like she could ask for that maybe, but it, it, you and I probably have a better chance of uh, landing the cover of the next uh, swimsuit edition. Right. Um, and then what, your other question was about the, the murder charge. What was your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, is that when it says um, mandatory life sentence, does that preclude the possibility of parole? Or That's a great question. And frankly, one that I had to research. And uh, after looking at it, it looks like that the judge is really a determining factor here with what exactly the sentence is going to look like. Under Wisconsin law, Jesse is going to have to serve an absolute minimum of 20 years. It doesn't look like there's any chance to get out any sooner than that. And then it's the judge's discretion whether it'll be a life sentence without the possibility of parole, whether it'll be a life sentence and after 20 years or, or community supervision, I should say, or whether after 20 years she'll be able to get out and do community supervision, or if the judge feels that another time frame is appropriate. Maybe she looks at Jesse's age, the crime, and some other things and says, well, you know, 20 years isn't enough, but I think you should get a chance to get out. So 40 years, then you can get out. So really, it's going to come down to the judge and how the sentencing goes on uh, December 7th. When I learned of Lenny's passing, I immediately knew something was awry and not reality. I thank God every day for the detectives and DA that represented this case as they kept me well informed and were sympathetic to my feelings and my beliefs is they have the same concerns. Justice has been served. Rest in peace, my lovely Aunt Dylan. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.